0: So now it's time to talk about tipping. David Lefebvre is with us. Mr. Lefebvre is a vice president with Restaurants Canada, joining us from across the river from Ottawa in Gatineau, Quebec, to talk about tipping as, uh, well, a Canadian thing who may which may have seen its time. Mr. Lefebvre, David, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about Restaurants Canada, David, before we zoom in on this situation with tipping that seems to be coming out of Toronto more than anything else. Tell us about your organization first, please.
1: Yes, good. So, so Restaurants Canada is basically the Restaurant and Food Service Association uh, in, in the country, the National Association. Uh, close to 32,000 members out of an industry of, of 95,000, you know, pre COVID. Uh, establishments, uh, we basically represent our member both in government affairs and industry affairs. And, and, of course, through this crisis, you know, trying to, trying to make the most of it and trying to, 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 to fight for, uh, both independent restaurant chain and brands, uh, in order to make sure the industry can survive.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at the website, David, restaurantscanada.org, and lots of lots of useful information for members navigating COVID nineteen updates and resources for food service operators. But you know, there's one little notice here on the front page of your website, David, that caught my eye earlier. A third of Canada's food service workforce is still out of work. What is the likelihood for that sector of the service industry still out of work, David? finally return to work or how many of those are working or were working for restaurants or establishments who are simply not coming back
1: yeah that's a good point is you know survey after survey since the early april uh we find we find that about you know 10 percent of restaurants say that they're gone forever and 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 there's an there's another 15 to 20 percent that that is just not sure where it's going to go especially because of the social distancing the operations that reduce capacity Mm -hmm. and, and other kind of problems and i and i think the last third of the workforce that's not come back to work uh you know since the start of the crisis it will depend what goes on during the fall and the winter you know well, once you don't have the patios anymore because, because it's going to be too cold, uh, once government starts to recede some of the help and the wage subsidy because, because it's going to have been in place for a long time, and those kind of successive challenges will make a difference uh, in terms of to know how many workers are going back to the workforce, uh, but there's definitely quite a bunch of jobs that will will
0: be gone forever. Yeah. You mentioned patios, and I'm glad you did, because as a as an interim step in, in terms of the timing of it all, uh, and here in British Columbia, David, we have been, been in phase three now for uh, mm-hmm. close, to, close to two months, and most of the cities, the big cities of Vancouver and Surrey and the surrounding municipalities are being very good at fast-tracking the applications for patios from restaurants and, and breweries and bars. They've been really working hard. Hard to give these establishments any kind of break uh, that they can. They're not bogging them down in red tape and making them wait for weeks. So with 50% capacity. And the patio, some restaurants are now actually not going to, I would hesitate to say realizing a profit, David, but coming Mm -hmm. close to breaking even is an accomplishment these days. And with the addition of the patio, that seems to be more possible for more restaurants. But it is indeed, as you mentioned, a temporary situation. It's going to get cold, not right away. Here we are in another 30 degree day here in Vancouver. And I know it's hot as crazy in Ontario and Quebec, today too but eventually you're right patios aren't going to be at play anymore so what's going to happen then do you think
1: no you're right and it's something response canada has worked very hard both with provincial and municipal authorities uh of course including british columbia to try to have patios extension you know approved faster and though vancouver and the lower mainland arguably have have, you know more a nicer climate that that a lot of other places in the country you know winter is going to cut up to you like it's going to cut to to everybody and 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 that's going to be a reduction of capacity right. So what we hope we hope that the that the sanitary conditions will be in place for um, you know opening at a greater capacity for the inside dining room once the patios. Uh, you know, have to close or be significantly reduced, though we're not sure the timing is going to work, right? It's going to be dependent on a lot of factors. Sure. And definitely what we've been saying since the start, like the worst thing for the restaurants industry would be a second wave that would require more closing in the fall.
0: Mm-hmm. And we've seen that in several examples in the United States, haven't we, David? But there, it's different because they didn't manage the first wave very well. So the second wave seems to have been more inevitable. At least here in Canada, we're doing, I think, a little more effective job of flattening that curve and keeping it relatively flat, even though, of course... Uh, over the summertime, as more people get out and uh, circulate, there are more more uh, breaking of some of those rules and more identification of of uh, cases of COVID. However, on a, on a scale comparison between Canada and the United States, we're still in much better shape. But we still don't know what the fall will bring. Do we really?
1: No, 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 no we don't. But but I think comparison with the U.S. in this case is is a good point to make. Like, like, I would say, I would say that even though winter is going to be, you know, fall and winter is going to be more severe in in New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts than than Florida and Texas. Sure. Uh, there, there's an argument to be made to be even more confident for restaurants in the northeast, eastern states than the southern states because of the the way the way that the pandemic was dealt with, and because of the way the first the, the first wave was dealt with. I would say that you know. Even even in Quebec and Ontario, that were the hardest hit provinces in Canada, mm-hmm. apart from the from the you know the nursing homes, uh, the rest was managed quite 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 efficiently, and, and I think British Columbia and, 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 and Alberta did did even better than what was done east. So so not to say that I am you know an, I am an eternal optimist. But 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 I think there's some there's some reason to be optimistic for 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 what's coming, or or at least not facing a doomsday scenario.
0: Yeah, I, I, we'll get to tipping in a second. One more question for you though, David. Just from an executive national perspective, with the mm-hmm. with the introduction uh, across Canada of imp, uh, of the implementation of rules by, in our case, Dr. Bonnie Henry across Canada, the local provincial health officers have issued certain restrictions, certain guidelines and for restaurants and bars and other hospitality venues those um, uh, rules and the new regulations have included uh, the installation of uh, plexiglass barriers the reduction and removal of some tables and chairs and so on and these are restaurants who of course were closed for a number of months to begin with uh, maybe some of them were able to stay open for a uh, takeout and that sort of thing but now, uh, after having been closed for a while, uh, to, in order to reopen, they've had to invest even more money that they don't have to buy all of these plexiglass barriers and refit or retrofit their establishments to comply with the regulations. What are your members telling you, David, about the, the costs that in associated with this these new rules and regulations and complying and how that's how that's um, hurting their bottom line if indeed it is I suspect it probably is
1: yes definitely it is and I think I, I think this is you know in terms of these costs uh, especially the retrofitting cost and the plexiglass and those kind of things yeah m- mo- most probably. Uh, It the hardest, you know, independent uh, full service restaurants because these are the one with the boots and the chairs and you know that are welcoming a lot of people in the dining room. Uh, Probably impacted quite a little bit less some some quick service restaurants and those that were doing more takeout and delivery already before the crisis. And it is a significant impact, especially when you add that on top of that, you need to pay for the protective equipment, the masks and the visors and those kind of things that your employees have. And you also need to pay to train the employees to the new measures. So I would say it was kind of a triple whammy of new cost, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at a time where you don't have enough customers to be able to, uh, you know, do the same money and have the same revenue. So this is, why, this is why we work with government, both federal and provincial, to have some medium long-term support. The wage subsidy has come in handy. Unfortunately, not so much help in terms of rent. Uh, but but we're still working those files with with government and also everything that can promote consumer confidence, whether it's an elf perspective or also. Uh, you know, making sure that people go back to restaurants and feel safe—it is something that we're working at the local level.
0: We hear stories, David, about uh, those who are receiving the SERB uh, benefit, uh, who are uh, uh, many of whom are were working in the hospitality industry. And as the industry reopens ever so gradually, uh, some of these workers are being contacted to uh, return. And in some cases, not all, but certainly in some cases, the workers are saying no, thanks. I am actually doing better financially, uh, not working than I am working. What do you hear from your membership about the CERB as some kind of impediment to getting staff back?
1: Yeah, we, we, we heard about that a lot, especially early in the crisis. I would say from late March until early May. But since the dining room, I've started to reopen. It is a story that we hear less and less. Good, not to say not. So, so, so it it it, it, it became a real problem at start. Now it's a little bit more anecdotal. Uh, not to say that it doesn't happen, but you see, you, you still have about, you know, 400,000 people in the food service that have been reemployed. And technically and legally, everybody that was not fired, that was, for example, furloughed yes. or say, okay, we're going to call you back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to go back. Otherwise you lose your service. That's not, true. And, and the other thing that the federal government made that out that because we're, we're a line of business where there's a lot of part-time worker, they still allow you to make a thousand dollars a month and or less and keep your CERB. so at the same time this has this has you know incentivized a lot of part-time workers to say okay i 'll go back to my part- time job and, and oftentimes there were not a lot of hours to be offered in the food service anyway exactly so the, so some of the people could, could keep the benefit but you see you know serve at the peak uh, you had five five and a half million people on the role in the country, it's down to one and a half million. So, so you guess a lot of people have come back to work by now.
0: Absolutely. Now, David, you and I have uh, had a good go at Restaurants Canada. Uh, the original reason we contacted you was to get your feelings and your organization's uh, position on the matter of tipping. Because, of course, in Europe, they don't. In Asia, many parts of Asia, they don't. But here in North America and all over Canada, they do, except Now some restaurants in Toronto are saying... It's time for this to be over. We need to move on to other models. David Lefebvre is with us. Mr. Lefebvre is uh, Vice President with Restaurants Canada, joining us on the line this morning from the Ottawa-Gatineau area. We had a great chat about uh, the state of the industry in Canada. But, David, the, the main reason we got you on the program this morning, uh, aside from a national update on the status of our hospitality industry, is to take a look at this uh, this notion that's being introduced by a few restaurants in Toronto of taking away t- Increasing prices. Uh, in one case, one restaurant called Ten is adding an automatic 18% surcharge to bills. Uh, another restaurant, Burdocks, is just raising prices. Uh, Burdox says it's a predictable living wage for our servers and kitchen staff during these unpredictable times that we're after. Thus, the change in policy. But this is juxtaposed, David, by a story out of New York City uh, where just a few days ago, the Union Square Hospitality Group announced that it would be reintroducing tipping after having eliminated it five years ago, saying it was a great idea in theory. It didn't work so well in practice. So why aren't the Toronto and Ontario restaurants contemplating removing tipping, taking a look to the South at their examples, their neighbors in New York City going, well, they tried it. They let it go for five years and they've abandoned it because in their experience, it didn't work. What do you think, David?
1: Well, I, I think it's an important topic, and there's two main points to it. So, so the first main point to it is that every time there's a crisis in the food service industry, whether it's a labor shortage, uh, whether it was you know the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, uh, w- w- whenever it is like a labor shortage of cooks and something like that, mm-hmm. and now COVID, there's some restaurants that think that moving to a mandatory tip or, e- or, or, or even just raising prices uh, could be a good solution. And, and from time to time, you have some 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 cluster of restaurants that are trying it across the country. You yes. know, sometimes, a few years ago, it was out in Quebec. I know Calgary has done it a few times. Mm-hmm. And now it's a few restaurants in Toronto. So as an association, we think everybody can try their own tipping models. But usually, from our experience, what happens is exactly what happened in New York City, is that some restaurants are trying it and they find it is so ingrained in the culture of the customers to keep the control in the tip and to use it as a way to to reward or or even punish bad service uh, that it's very hard to maintain in the long term. So not to say it's not something that can work in the short term, but it's pretty hard to maintain it in the long term. So... During this, this crisis, we're kind of glad that some people are trying it because we're going to see what goes on in the market and we're going to see if it works and if it doesn't work. But from our experience, usually people in Canada, after four or five months, they go back because, because there's two impacts. First, people then lose control over you know the, how they reward the service. And the second thing is that there's a sticker shock in terms of when you see the new prices sure. uh, in the case of those who are increasing the prices. And usually, from our experience, this doesn't go very well with the
0: customers. You know, it's it's interesting because, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, David, there, the the notion even the practice of tipping is an alien concept in many parts of the world. My first uh, many many uh, many visits to Europe a long time ago, uh, you, you know, you're as a visitor as a foreign person, you're always trying to fit in, and so you look around and you see, you know, what uh, what are people tipping, and you know, you just want to be one of the crowd, and so mm. you know, I eventually had to ask, and no, 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 you don't have to do that that sir it's all built into the into the tab and everywhere you went it was all built into the tab and when you sort of adjusted to the fact that tipping is 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 uh, it's the same in Australia Uh, they they don't because they just charge that much more and they say because of that David the wage scale is better for all members of the staff is that could that be the case in Canada? Could the elimination of tipping create a better pay scale across the board for employees in the biz? Well, there there's some, there some places in the world that, that have no tip and the price is,
1: you know, integrated or the tip in mandatory. And some places, some workers can make a little bit more money, but some places they don't make more than what they do on average in Canada. Right. Uh, the, the second thing is that there's a difference between, you know, making it a mandatory 15 or 18% or whatever tip because then you need to reshuffle it and give it to your employees. But if you just increase the prices, technically there's nothing legally or in the regulations that say that all these increases need to go to your employees. Right. You can, still, you can still pay them the same fee and just tell them, well, you're not, you're not tip employees anymore and, and, and there's no guarantee that this money goes to the employee. It can, but, 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 but it, it cannot. Uh, and, and also the operators need to understand that, you know, when when they charge more and they integrate the tip, then they need to, to give the tip to the employees. And they also need, of course, to pay all the social charges, whether it's the EI or the Canadian pension plan, which, which can be a good thing for, for the employees. From an association perspective, we doubt that in the short or medium term, this will catch a lot of fire and and become the norm in the industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we definitely think that there are some restaurants probably more in the table service and the high end that are going to be able to make this experiment last a little bit longer than others.
0: Some of the fine dining establishments where you there's no surprise that you're going to pay a lot just because of the, the nature of the restaurant and the expectation level that you have walking in their front door, right? Yeah. And, and some of the reason when, when we travel to Asia or,
1: or Europe that we feel the difference between, uh, you know, tip being included and ear tip not being included. It's because when we go to restaurants when we're on vacation, we tend to go to higher-end restaurants than when we go usually when we're at home. So, for example, when you go to any to any quick service in Europe or Asia, wouldn't make any difference here because, because tipping is not in the culture sure. in terms of the quick service restaurants. And because we go more to high-end restaurants when we travel, we feel more the difference.
0: Interesting stuff. Now, you mentioned this, and, and, and it's come up, and I'm sure as, as Restaurants Canada, you would, would have a lot of data to back this up. Tipping, from the the dining point of view, from the customer perspective, the tip is actually, the, or the prospect, of a good or bad tip. Uh, it can be used by some customers in kind of negative ways, almost, can't it? Well, yes, yes, yeah, so... As as you can use the the, the tip
1: to uh, you know give an additional reward to to good or very good service. Mm-hmm. Uh, some cu- some customers like the fact that they can use the tip, uh, you know, to 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 give less in order to reflect you know n- n- not as good service as they thought they would expect. And a lot of customers, when you look at surveys, they they like using the tip because because of future times they will go in an establishment. They say, well, the way I calibrate my tip will make a difference in the overall service that all the customers get in this place. And this is why this part of the restaurant culture, from the customer point of view, is very hard to break. Because, because tipping is not just, for example, okay, today, David, you did this and that, and, and so I'm tipping you this or that. Yeah. It's because, well, the five next time I'm coming here and all the other customers, I want to make sure David knows I add good service or bad service so the restaurants can adapt and adjust. And, and David himself has an interest in adjusting to make sure he does a good job. So, so this is the part where the culture thing uh, we feel from past experiments is pretty hard to break.
0: Interesting stuff. David Lefebvre, very good of you to join us this morning. I'm commending your website to our listeners, restaurantscanada.org, the voice of the food service. It's a terrific resource, not only for restaurants, but also for people who like to go to restaurants and see what the industry is doing behind the scenes to make it more welcoming for that experience. And they kind of miss you. So check it out, restaurantscanada.org. David Lefebvre, thanks for this. We'll talk again, sir. We appreciate this very much. My pleasure. Have a nice day. A pleasure to welcome Sam Cooper back to the program. Mr. Cooper is a global news investigative journalist. Sam has been with us in the past talking about several stories that he's filed, uh, mostly regarding the relationship between China and Canada, and Sam's latest story uh, referring to a parliamentary committee meeting here in Canada a few days ago, uh, and uh, learning uh, Canadian politicians learning firsthand uh, more details about the new security law passed by Beijing, in which they give themselves permission to police Chinese people the world over. Sam Cooper, welcome back. Great to have you with us this morning.
2: Thanks for having me, Sterling.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. So your story uh, dealt with a parliamentary committee here in Canada, learning up close and personal, perhaps many of the members of the committee for the first time, more uh, details, Sam, about this new security legislation passed rubber-stamped by the uh, parliament in Beijing a couple of weeks ago.
2: That's right. We're we're learning about really the, the stunning reach power uh really the, the, the draconian nature of this law. And I'll just give you one little correction. It, it, it is not just people of Chinese heritage worldwide that are targeted by Chinese Beijing secret police here. It's essentially uh, any citizen in the world, uh, any citizen of any country, any race. And how it, we learned that in the hearing because a conservative MP asked Samuel Chu, who is an American citizen, a Hong Kong, uh, you know, an advocate for democracy he comes from a christian faith mr chu uh in los angeles woke up in august 1st to realize he had been charged under this new national security law he's an american citizen right uh the 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 nature of the charges they they say that he uh by advocating for uh you know uh, a rollback or or sanctions in hong kong because this law has really wiped out any other due process he has been charged for uh, encouraging uh, succession or colluding with foreign powers. So uh, we heard in the hearing that, that really all Canadians need to be concerned because in this hearing, members were saying uh, the line has to be drawn. Hong Kong is not a society with any rule of law anymore. Right. Sanctions do need to happen. And of course, Canada cannot have an extradition hearing with a, a jurisdiction where anyone can be thrown in jail by a, a political committee, really, run by secret police on the ground in Hong Kong.
0: Mm-hmm. And so basically Beijing gave itself permission. And I perhaps express myself poorly, Sam, because uh, it, it, um, uh, uh, what I'm what I'm talking about, I think, in terms of the reach that Beijing gave itself was to be able to go after persons of Chinese ancestry, Chinese ethnicity, regardless of their citizenship anywhere on the planet for what they see as subversive activity.
2: Absolutely. And uh, this is, uh, you know, expanding on a theme that uh, I've I've probed for global news. And this relates to uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, rather twisted ideology that if, you, uh, if you're of Chinese heritage, it doesn't matter if you're a citizen of another country right. enjoying uh, freedom of speech, uh, enjoying the protections of the rule of the law. If you speak critically against the Chinese Communist Party, you can be charged under this law. So what the effect of that is, is uh, they are trying to chill free speech we have young Hong Kong Canadians that have posted on their Twitter accounts anything I say, my opinion only, it does not reflect my family or friends. Right. This means that these people they, they cannot travel of course to Hong Kong anymore. Uh, and the more uh, you know, the more vociferous ones they don't they, they believe they can't travel to a country that even has friendly relations with China. They don't know, you know, if they land in another country they might wake up to find out they've been charged. They could be arrested. And uh, if that country is under the thumb of Beijing, they could be extradited to China to face a no justice trial. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is people of a uh, Chinese ethnicity that are first and foremost targeted. Yes. But again, uh, it could be outspoken Canadian politicians that are not of Chinese heritage that are targeted. And uh, uh Honestly, you know, I, I I know sources that that believe that will happen. Not just Chinese heritage. This is very wide. Everyone in the world, really.
0: So, what is the position, if any? Of the government of Canada with respect to this, and I know we've made a couple of uh, uh, slight adjustments vis-a-vis our direct relationship with Hong Kong, but beyond that, the bigger picture, what is the reaction or the official position of the government of Canada vis-a-vis this new level of threat on Canadian citizens? Well, first of all, they
2: have taken the correct action. We saw the Five Eyes uh, allies, that is, uh, the, you know, the, the, the nations that have uh, grown out of an alliance between the U.S., uh, the United Kingdom, ourselves, New Zealand and Australia, moved quickly to end extradition treaties with Hong Kong and, uh, based on this change in law. But uh, Canada's government's position has been uh, moving from statements such as gravely concerned with these changes in, uh, in Hong Kong to very concerned, that type of statement, without uh, putting more teeth in it. So what we're hearing in the Canada-China relations uh, hearing from the experts is Beijing will not respect words. They, The only way, the only chance that they will uh, recognize the, the wrong path that they're on with this law is sanctions against their leaders. So Lily, really that brings us full circle. What Beijing is trying to do with this chilling broad law is to uh, stop people from asking for sanctions against Chinese leaders with respect to human rights abuses and etc. And uh, I, the experts are saying Canada must be much more vigorous, both in its action, its towards china and in protecting canadians of chinese heritage on our own soil who uh i'll I'll cut to the chase who are telling me they're telling a, a lot of people they don't feel protected by ottawa they're getting harassed by agents of uh, the Chinese Communist Party within our own country here in Canada.
0: Yeah, there's a protest here in Vancouver we're going to learn about in a couple of minutes too from one of the organizers and we'll get into those details in a second. Uh, final question to you, Sam, and we're grateful to have you back today. Uh, as uh, the, as this goes forward, did anyone at this parliamentary committee hearing that you covered on Canada-China relations the other day, anyone happen to mention that 85% of Canadians, of all political 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 persuasions, are very much on side with uh, a a ramped up, uh, more aggressive attitude towards this belligerence from Beijing. Did that even come up?
2: We didn't hear that specific statistic, but you're absolutely right. The the polls are showing uh, a vast majority and a rising majority of Canadians have had enough of uh, China's bullying, specifically in Hong Kong and very broadly around the world. They're increasing uh, aggressive foreign policy stances. We heard uh, some experts alluding to those facts that, uh, you know, uh, there's public will for Canada to take strong action. And really, there, when you look at what China is attempting to do, from uh, elite power levels at Beijing, there's really no other course of action reasonably but, but to stand against this and, and uh, ask for really uh, stronger countermeasures.
0: Interesting stuff. Sam, we're always grateful to have you on the show. We appreciate your taking time out of your weekend to, to join us again. This is a terribly, terribly important issue, and uh, you and I will definitely uh, connect on it as we go forward. I am uh, on side with the work you're doing. Please keep it up. It's great stuff, Sam. Thanks very much, Sterling. A pleasure. In front of the Vancouver Art Gallery, there will be a protest taking place uh, to uh, 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 ga- organized by the Vancouver Society in support of the democratic movement in Hong Kong. The chair of that society is Mabel Tung, who is with us this morning to talk about the gathering at the gallery. Mabel, welcome back. Good to have you with us on the program again.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. So tell us now, we had uh, just Sam Cooper describing some more about the Canadian reaction to this Beijing national security law that they passed a couple of weeks ago uh, and uh, it, its impact on Hong Kong. Tell us about the protest, Mabel. Uh, how many are you expecting uh, and uh, so on?
3: Yeah, we are, um, because of this law, um, we, we understand it's urgency that we have to urge our government to act fast. The reason why is um, you you understand that uh, the the national law just in place for only a month and a half. Mm -hmm. But they have the crackdown for really high profile uh, uh, protesters uh, in Hong Kong, like Edna Chow and she's uh, the activist in Hong Kong. And also some other um, um, activists as well, like uh, the most famous uh, Jimmy Lai, the chairman of the Apple Daily.
0: The media guy.
3: yeah. So that's why we know that this, there's a lot of crap is still going on um, to the protests during Hong Kong. And so we, we understand this urgency. So that's why we connect with other um, cities. We have nine cities nine all city altogether, including Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg, Montreal, Markham, Edmonton, Calgary, Victoria, and us. So we have this um across canada valley to urge our government to act fast to um create uh, offer a safe harbor program um for uh and also expedite some process to grant the protection and permanent residency status for the hong kongers and also international students and expatriate workers who are uh, at risk of political prosecution under this law right so Mm -hmm. So that's why we we have this rally, and also we also issue a statement to urge the government to ask fast for uh, Meliski at two uh, to to, um, to sanction the Chinese and Hong Kong officials. Uh, who undermined Hong Kong autonomy and also involved with uh, human rights violation?
0: Mabel, so you mentioned. Ex- Sorry, you mentioned nine Canadian cities, including Vancouver. Is the idea yeah. to have the protest occurring simultaneously at all nine cities?
3: Are we all on the same day? Because right. It's, um, which cities have their own time? mostly in the afternoon. So we, uh, we have it at 4 o'clock this afternoon at the Art Gallery at Love Plaza. Um, so we expecting expecting... Um... Okay,
0: so wait a second. i So I'm mistaken here uh, by uh, in, thinking that you were going to be gathering at the Art Gallery this morning. It is this afternoon. Is that correct?
3: This afternoon. Yeah, that's this... right. This afternoon at
0: 4 o'clock. Okay, so my information is incorrect and I'm glad to have you with us because it only lasted a matter of seconds on the airwaves and you've straightened it all out. I was For some reason, I thought it was going to start at 8.15 this morning, perhaps to line up with Toronto and some of the other protests but you're going this afternoon at four o'clock at the Vancouver Art Gallery
3: yeah exactly
0: Mabel are you concerned we just had this conversation with Sam Cooper a few moments ago about Chinese Canadians and this new law that sees Beijing uh giving itself authority to um uh, to deal with anyone who they deem to be subversive anywhere on the planet regardless of their citizenship you understand this are you concerned personally
3: I'm not concerned. The reason why is I'm a Canadian. I've been in this uh, beautiful land for over 40 years. So I'm protected by our Charter of Rights in Canada. But I do concern some people, they are not really Canadian and they are, um, you know, um, they still saying something against the Chinese government. So those people will be uh, a big concern no matter where you are. So, ex- example, like Samuel Chiu probably um, someone mentioned it already. Samuel Chiu is one of um, um, Americans. Yes. America, yeah, for 25 years. And um, and he is one of the wanted from the Hong Kong government for... For, uh, for speaking for, out. Yeah, for speaking out. And also, you know, they said um, he's inciting secession and, and collusion with foreign force to endanger international security. But he is the one that only lobby his own government for, to change some policy for, uh, for, the, for Hong Kongers. So I don't understand why they can issue something for the foreigners. So, you know, if you say something in the radio, you should be, uh, be careful when you uh, transit to, to Hong Kong to other countries or, you know, and also to other countries with the uh, extradition uh, treaty with China.
0: What do, you see, what do you hear from uh, uh, organizations opposed to the, te- the, uh, the new law around the world? For example, uh, Chinese expat communities in Europe and other parts of Asia. Are there protests also going on there as well as across Canada today?
3: Um, they, the other, you mean the other organization? Yes. Um, the other organization um, working with us.
0: Yes, I'm just wondering in terms of uh, the kind of reaction that we're seeing across Canada from Chinese Canadians, is this being replicated by uh, Chinese expats in other parts of the world?
3: Yes, yes, they do. Every Friday um, uh, across Europe, they already have a campaign of um, stand in Hong Kong um, and and also uh, in we, uh, we have a connection with other uh, uh, countries as well. We have almost like 14 countries that working together. Um, probably not exactly this week, but they have um, something going on um, for the last few weeks.
0: But it is a global organization. So 4 o'clock this afternoon, where do people go to learn more about it? Are you on Twitter? What's your, what's your, your, your social media focal point?
3: So we have Facebook, and also we have our website, vssdm.org. People can go into our website and look at all the details.
0: Four o'clock this afternoon at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Mabel Tung, thank you for uh, returning to the program. We'll see you on TV tonight. It's an uneasy time to be named Karen. There's no shortage of online videos of Karens, a slang term for angry, privileged white women verbally abusing people in racist ways or throwing tantrums about mask wearing. There are numerous articles highlighting this behavior Lots of commenting about uh, the behavior online and in the press. But really, what on earth is going on here? Stress and COVID-19, those are two pretty predictable factors, but there's got to be more to it than that. Alejandra Proano is with us. She is a clinical psychotherapist and owner of Healing Anger here in Vancouver. Uh, It's a pleasure to say good morning to you, Alejandra. Thank you for joining us today.
4: Good morning. Thanks for having me today.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. So talk to us about the Karen syndrome and, and where it started and why it's, uh, why it's gathered such rapid momentum.
5: Hmm.
4: Well, this is, um, it's really interesting because um, it looks like, for me as an anger management specialist, I usually explain what happens in the physiology of anger, Mm -hmm. where we are all equals. It doesn't matter if you're doing it or if you're feeling that extreme anger for the wrong reasons or the right reasons. Physiologically, it operates in the exact same way for all of us. However, in this Karen's experience, there's way more than that. Um, And there is... um, there might be trauma, um, but there also there needs to have a conversation about racism needs to take place, right? So there's all these elements that are playing um, underneath of what we are seeing as a negative expression of anger.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, I, and I wasn't being flippant, by the way, Alejandra, when, when I said <laughs> two, uh, two major contributing factors to these behaviors have to be stress and COVID-19. That's not an excuse by any means, but it is, I think, recognition of the fact that all of us are uh, dealing with additional layers of stress as a result of the complete change in so many of our lives uh, over the past few months. That contributes to stress levels in in individuals, doesn't it?
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, There has been this kind of lock-in where we are not able to do our usual activities, and this just puts... People in real contact with their emotions and in contact with um, their closest relationships and everything that has not been resolved in the past seems to show up.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Um, yeah. When someone, uh, and, and again, of course, everybody's a videographer. As long as you're carrying a phone, chances are you can at least take stills, and most of us can take movies. So all of a sudden, there you are in a parking lot or in the lobby of a department store or somewhere, and you flip out, and of course, that's, that's not enough. Somebody records it. It's on Facebook or some other platform, and it's viral within minutes. And there you are now, having, first of all, lost it in very public way, suddenly having that expand beyond the moment in in an almost very frightening way.
4: Yeah, it is um, quite unfortunate that this um, behavior has been um, associated with a name. Um, I think that that is not the best. Uh, I think that this reprehensible behavior is not okay, whether it comes from any race any person and in any country right Yeah. so it's interesting because um, this privilege this preferential treatment uh, this entitlement it's not okay and that can happen also inside a family like if we go into um, you know the people that come to see me usually there has been somebody that lost it in their family or uh, has been very angry for years, and that has a detrimental effect on the people around them. Mm -hmm. So here we are seeing the same thing, but publicly. Exactly. And so, of course, the trauma uh, kicks in, right? There might be this moment where, in your head, you're not connecting to who is this other person. In the moment where anger is very, very intense, our prefrontal cortex is not working well, and all your prejudices are going to uh, think that that other person that's in front of you is the radical other, mm-hmm. and I mean other with capital O, where this other is all your fears, um, and it's everything that you're afraid of. It's it's, it's everything that's making the world go wrong, <laughs> and and so we act. Uh, from a survival mode. So it's not rational at all.
0: Yeah. And I'm with you, by the way, uh, on the notion of of, uh, the unfortunate nature of the name. I happen to live next door to a woman named Karen. She's been my next door neighbor, Alejandra, for 10 years. She's a perfectly lovely woman. And I've never seen her lose it once or misbehave or any of that kind of stuff. Where did the name come from? Do you even know that? Mm,
4: Well, I think it's something that, they just made online and, uh, yeah, uh, I don't even know where that comes from. I, I do not, um, I do not research these things very much. People that come my way are just angry and want to make a better response out of this. And it has nothing to do with the name or the race or, even the
0: gender. I quite agree. But uh, what about the notoriety factor? Is that, mm. I, I mean, it, it, it's a it's a negative consequence. As I mentioned, you know, if you happen to be somewhere in public and uh, you kind of lose it, somebody's going right. to take a picture. of Somebody's going to film that event mm-hmm. and then it's going to go online and everybody's going to see you're right. that person who lost it in that department store or whatever. Now, some people actually seem to thrive on that sort of notoriety. Most people want to disappear and, and just go away, but some people, for whatever reason, seem to thrive on that. Is that a motivator?
4: hmm It's interesting because there seems to... Um, people want to shame these people. People want to stop these people from having this behavior, right? And, and sometimes if somebody starts... Um, video uh, recording your actions uh, in that moment is just going to make it worse. It's like telling a person that's angry that, hey, you're angry. Mm -hmm. It's just going to make things worse. And on the other side, there's this indignation um, of people observing these attitudes, which is a very kind of particular anger, which is related to a moral emotion, because we feel like, oh, this is not right, or this is not just, Mm -hmm. or this is dishonorable and we need to make it stop. So there's all, all these aspects also of all these social movements that are going on right now, trying to uh, show uh, that there is uh, racism and that there is entitlement from white people. And sometimes um, it it's not going in the right direction. And I do believe that whenever things like that have happened to me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Hispanic, and I have been a migrant. And so whenever that happens to me, I have asked myself, okay, what's going on for this other person? Oh, well, that person might have some ideas about my race or about my gender because I'm a woman, right? right? There's all these prejudices. Um, but it's, am I going to uh, respond in a violent way to the other person? No. Am I going to stand up and maybe very firmly move back and then maybe talk about it? Perhaps, yes. So it's about what do we do with that situation? Is it going to create more violence? Is it going to create more trauma, right, for the society? Right. Or can we act with some uh, dignity and acknowledgement that there are people that are suffering, there are people that are triggered by their trauma. And yes, there might be people that are racist.
0: Our guest on the line is clinical psychotherapist Alejandra Proano from HealingAnger.ca And Alejandra, I wanted to move beyond this uh, Karen syndrome part of the conversation into something that's uh, even more prevalent in BC these days, and it's happened on the TV news last night, and we're likely to see more of it today. And that's large groups, or larger than recommended groups, of young people gathering out of frustration and anger and generating even more anger in the rest of the population. This is a kind of a ripple effect that's not going to end well. So here you have competing angers on a a beautiful Saturday night at English Bay in downtown Vancouver. And there's a lot of anger out there and a lot of people just going, oh, please, can we not just hang out and relax? And not a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. So what do you make of all that?
4: Well, very hard uh, to relax when your body is telling you, oh, this is not safe. So there might be groups that are, their understanding, their feeling of the situation is, oh, this is, this is okay. Um, they might not be feeling such a threat uh, because maybe they're young or maybe they're just fed up and they don't know what to do. Right. Um there's this uh, helplessness that um is re- associated with a lot of lack of self-care. And I remember when I was young, I mean I always tried to think of put myself in the other person's shoes and say, well, I was uh you know less careful than today. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh we 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 were more reckless, right?
0: No question.
4: So Yeah. So it's like, okay, if these people want to do that, I'm not feeling safe and I'm going to have to um, look for other ways to protect me in my own situation, according to what I think is right. But then when when these moral confrontations take place, right, when it's like, oh, this is not right and I'm going to shame you for that,
6: it
4: it it takes it goes to another level. So now we're com- confronting another person, and that might be dangerous. And I just tell people, just let the the um, the policeman, let the guards take care of this. Like, don't try to take justice on your own hands.
0: What about that, though? Let me let me follow up on that because is you know because Doctor Bonnie Henry has been very very consistent right from the beginning because a lot of people have said over the many months and it's been a long time since we locked down in mid-march a lot of people have come to the good doctor and said look Bonnie um, you know a great messaging calm kind and all that stuff but you know some of these goofs need to be shut down so mm-hmm. and she says no they don't we just need to convince them and she's very consistent that way but Alejandra mm-hmm. do uh, do we need at some point the fun police to literally step in and say no get out of here this is wrong
4: right i mean we're talking about boundaries and um there are personal boundaries and we try to protect those personal boundaries and sometimes that might mean that i need to that we need not to go to some places that we were going before because it's not safe anymore right however um there's also social boundaries and that is where you know the police and our leaders step in and whenever um whenever we step uh, out of the boundaries that are safe for everybody else there needs to be some sort of uh stepping in from from the government and from the people that are supposed to guide us into keeping safe, keeping everybody safe.
0: So there's room in in this equation, in this conversation then, for law enforcement at certain points to intervene and go, enough already.
4: You know, I I really appreciate uh, the policemen in Vancouver, in Canada. They're generally very kind. They're generally open to coming and ask you to, you know, uh, very respectfully to, you know, Take care of yourself, and right. I think that needs to happen right now. Uh, the other option would be what has been happening in other countries, where there is not so many resources, and it's everybody in, like just law enforcement and the state goes really hard. And now we're all locked, mm-hmm. and so we don't want to get there. And I think that we are, we are, not thinking about how privileged we are, that we are can still go out. And so there is a problem there, again, of of entitlement. Again, it's like not being grateful and not caring, not taking care of what we have. Because we can lose this at any point, Yeah. right? And I think that the other thing has been that the conversation that has been not taking place is that everybody, in everybody's unconscious mind, it feels like, oh, the winter is going to come. And now we're going to be unlocked, and it's going to get
6: worse. Mm -hmm.
4: So we need to be prepared for the psychological uh, tension of this second wave that has been underlying, but nobody really knows. So there is this anxiety.
0: Can I ask you, as a clinical psychotherapist, one other question completely unrelated to the conversation we've had so far, Alejandra, and that deals with masks. In some countries in March, and I'm thinking of South Korea and Thailand and Japan and Malaysia and many other countries, particularly in Asia, when the the pandemic first was identified, the governments of those countries told their people, OK, folks, we got to knock this down and we got to do it quickly— from now on everybody wears a mask and guess what everybody put on a mask here in yeah. north america it's somehow or another about my personal rights versus your rights and blah 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 i mean what is it what is the minds what is it with the north american mindset you're from south america originally so what is it about <laughs> our north american mindset that just doesn't see people go okay masks make sense let's everybody do it and get it over with right uh there's
4: this idea of freedom right of um the government doesn't go into our bedrooms.
6: Well, <laughs> and, to and thank Pierre <laughs> Trudeau for that
4: one. <laughs> and and we we have freedom of of will. In the, and the in and in these other cultures, there's a lot of um, in, in Asian cultures. Uh, you know, the government um, people don't um, people don't have a choice. They internally they just. Say yes, and and that has worked really well in these cases. Um, and they weren't
0: threatened. Nobody but, was threatened. They just the government just said everybody needs to wear a mask. So everybody, everybody apparently went okay. That was it. Yes,
4: yes, and and their culture is very much like that. Um, they just uh, go abide by the rules. Uh, we're talking about a very traditional in oh, no of China, very traditional
0: sure. culture. So the, the North here, American mindset is completely—it's just that different.
4: Yeah, here people do appreciate having their own mindset, and that's cool. Um, but in these cases, it's—it hasn't been working really well, huh? No. Yeah, I mean, and we—we we only can do what we can. So, for example, for me in my practice, I—I I told all of my therapists that they couldn't be seeing people, and people were upset at me. Some of my clients were like, okay, well, I'm not seeing you then. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. And then they came around it, right? But it's natural that we have a resistance for change.
6: Okay. And,
4: and, And then we step into, oh, okay, actually boundaries are safe, and we need those boundaries to feel safe.
0: And boundaries
4: are not a bad thing necessarily.
0: There you go. And that's what I was hoping I'd get to with this. I have to leave it there. Wonderful (laughs) to speak to you, Alejandra. A very, very uh, interesting conversation. Alejandra Proano, clinical psychotherapist. You can find a lot more about her and connect with her, should you feel the need, at healinganger.ca. Thanks, Alejandra. We'll talk again.
4: Thanks, Sterling.
0: Bye. Our next guest is a marine biologist in the Deep Sea Ecology Program with Canada's Department of Fisheries and Oceans. It's a pleasure to welcome Charisse Dupree to the program to talk about climate change in the oceans. Charisse, good morning and welcome. Good
5: morning. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, it's a wonderful treat to have you with us this morning. Tell us about the work that you and your team have been doing. This has been going on for a couple of years. You started in, what, 2018 and 19? You've been working deep down off the far coast of Vancouver Island. How far out, Cherise?
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, We've been working hundreds of kilometers offshore of British Columbia um, and a couple kilometers down into the depths of the ocean.
0: So you're in international waters at that point, right?
5: Actually, we're not. We're just uh, we go as far as the the border. So we're we're far out there, but we're still in Canada.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, so is is that the two hundred mile limit? Is that the the old expressions that still apply?
5: Yeah, it still applies.
0: Yep. Okay, so what did you find? A, a couple of a, not more than a couple, a, several new species, correct?
5: Oh yes, um, we have we have backlogs of species to describe and and name. But um, the story actually starts uh, a a lot longer ago than than just the few years that we've been going out. We have um, this amazing, this beautiful time series uh, data set. Uh, 60 years ago it started, and every year, four or five times a year, um, an expedition has been going out there and sampling the water. And that's how we have this climate change story that we're now coupling with the the seamount that the ocean bathes.
0: Interesting. So you've been you've been gathering samples uh, from the ocean for sixty years. Uh, Do you typically go to the same, uh, roughly the same place to gather those samples to maintain consistency?
5: The exact same line has been driven every year for sixty years. It's incredible.
0: Okay, so that's uh, a nice set of data to work from. You've just Mm -hmm. you've just published a study. You and the team, Charisse. What can you tell us this morning?
5: yeah, so um where is our like our deep sea explorations that we've been going on the last couple of years? It's been exciting. It's new species, it's new seamounts, mounts, um, beautiful imagery. Uh, the coupling of that with this long-term data set is is pretty alarming. What we've found is that there's climate change impacts in the deep sea, a kilometer two kilometers down. In the last sixty years, we've seen a decrease of fifteen percent of the oxygen in the water in around those seamounts.
0: So the reduction of the oxygen component in the water mm-hmm. at that depth produces what? Uh, it, it restricts the ability of species to survive, right?
5: Exactly. Everything from reproducing, to moving, to feeding, to just living out their lives. It's getting harder and harder. And what we're finding is that the animals there are, are very vulnerable to this change. Um, in addition to that, if that wasn't bad enough, we found that the oxygen acidity is rising too. So we have both these uh, these important environmental variables that depict where animals can live in the ocean rapidly changing in the deep sea.
0: So the oxygen is dropping and acidification is rising. These are two uh, directions that you, you would hope would be going the opposite way in both cases, but they're just flat out not, right?
5: Yeah, well, actually, we would like to see them stay still on, like, geological times. We would like them to be the same for 1,000 years, because that's, that's how long some of these animals live for, hundreds to thousands of years, and they don't like change very much. So we would just like to be still.
0: But that's not the case. Acidification is a term that we're not accustomed to, Sharice. Now, Mm. it's been a while since Mulroney Mm -hmm. and uh, Daddy Bush put together the big acid rain treaty back there in the Mm. 80s. But that was the last time that North Americans, particularly Canadians, were even slightly conscious of the notion of acidification. And and Mm -hmm. we called it acid rain in those days. Mm. Uh, is, Is it the same phenomenon that you're talking about now in 2020?
5: It actually does, uh, your, your, your throwback there lends itself well to the story. So, um, it's, it's a human caused climate change impact. It's, um, it's the pH of the water rising. So basically, um, how things dissolve in the water. If you think about vinegar being more acidic, than just a cup of water. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these animals are made out of calcium-based um, structures. And so that calcium dissolves when you put it in acid. And so it's not, it's not a good trend at all for us to see this pH, this pH rising around these animals that can dissolve
0: so when you were down uh, over the last couple of years in addition to continuing the data gathering and the conclusion finding you were also mm-hmm. investigating for new species and you mm-hmm. and and your teammates were frankly floored by what you found tell us more about your discoveries
5: yeah so there is an entire world of animals that exist down there that uh, that we just we didn't know about them there incredibly complex and large they form so things like sponges and corals that you would expect to see in the tropics mm-hmm. um, on a coral reef you see them down on these underwater volcanic mountains um, making huge uh, structures meters tall and that brings in uh, the shrimp and the crabs which brings in the fish which brings in the shark and the octopus and so it's uh, you turn on the lights down there and uh, you illuminate this world that is so, um, it's so abundant. And uh, it's just like nothing we expected before. And then everything is just a little quirky, you know, it kind of looks like something you'd find in the intertidal, which just a little bit different, because it's, it's the deep sea relative of. Um, and so that's where we come to the these new species that we're, we're exploring their lives, how they make a living so far down in the deep sea.
0: Is this part of the deep sea off the coast of British Columbia? Is, is this one of the deepest points off our coast that you decided to investigate, Cherise?
5: It's close to the deepest. Um, the deepest we have off our waters is three kilometers, and we've been able to get down to 2.2 kilometers. So we're, we're almost at that limit.
0: And were you able to do so in a submersible uh, with occupied by humans, or were you sending down uh, uh, those little uh, drones, underwater drones?
5: Ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's the drone answer, but I'm gonna tell you they're not little. They're, um, so we have robots the size of um, of like uh, of, of a car. Okay. okay. Except it's a car um, with arms and maybe a dozen cameras on it. And uh, we all sit in a a virtual kind of control room uh, on the boat. And we send down this robot, you know, to kind of do our bidding. And we can control it in real time. Um, We have, you know, beautiful 4K cameras. And so we are able to uh, stay down there for days at a time with this robot, because, of course, with manned submersibles, uh, you know, people wanted to eat and sleep and do other things. um, But the robot, it just stays down all the time. Sure. it's pretty fantastic to to have these large robots that can run around the sea for us.
0: I bet wonderful work yeah. too. Uh, I can, I've only got a minute left, and I need mm. you to I need you to tell us based on the study and the investigative work you've done firsthand, along with your teammates, what advice would you have for the rest of us in terms of preservation of what's there a couple of hundred miles offshore?
5: Right. Well, um, life is amazing, and so this isn't this isn't a doom and gloom story. Although we we want to sound the alarm, um, these animals are probably going to surprise us with which ones can adapt um, and what they what they pull out to survive this climate change um, impact that they're about to go through. So what we can do is mitigate any kind of direct human impacts that we're allowing to happen in the ocean. So when you hear about bottom contact fishing, when you hear about the proposal for deep-sea mining, you have to think about how these animals are already going through something that we can no longer control. So the least we can do is step back, buffer the situation and give them a fighting chance.
0: Sharice Dupree, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Keep up the good work and we'll talk again.
5: Thanks. It was my pleasure.
0: Indeed. Bye. A marine biologist with this, with the uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, there's Charisse Dupree this morning. Interesting work. Fantastic work, too. Our next guest wrote a column for the National Post a couple of days ago that caught Andrew and my eye immediately. The title or the headline of the column, Threats to Trudeau and his Cabinet, Up 30% someone is going to get killed the the story was written by freelance reporter Justin Ling who joins us on the line this morning from Montreal Justin good morning and welcome hey good morning it's good to have you with us uh, this notion of uh, threat level increasing uh, is this recent Justin you've done a lot of homework on this file and I know you got back and you began the column with a reminder of a, a of, of a British uh, female politician back several years ago who was murdered, uh, and then you move more, more to, uh, closer to, the, to contemporary times. How long has have you noticed, or have has anyone noticed the escalation of the threat level?
7: So, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a whole bunch of data from the RCMP. They've only really given me for the last you know two years. I can tell you that in 2019, there was about a hundred threats to Trudeau and his cabinet. This, so far this year, in the first half of this year, it's 130. So it's a 30% increase, like okay. I said. Um, but, you know, going further back, I've talked to some people who worked in public safety under the Harper government, and they say point blank, it was never this bad. They had to deal with threats, particularly radicalized individuals who were, um, you know, who had pledged allegiance to the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. Certainly they were probably the most predominant threat under the Harper years, you know, going back um, you know, 2008 to 2011 or so, okay. 2015 rather. Um, but you know what we're seeing right now is this huge increase, both from right wing extremism, some conspiracy movements, a continued presence of a threat by the uh, the Islamic State and other allied groups, um, and it's it's and a handful of other kind of disparate groups, uh, you know, from from regionalized uh, areas around the world. Um, and what it's kind of combining to is the perfect storm of all of these variant threats. Um, that are all, um, I think, really intensely targeting this government. This government is also, um, you know, quite unpopular in parts of the country. It is a very diverse cabinet, as Trudeau loves to remind us. Um, You know, the female members of cabinet are getting an uh, an insane amount of threats. Um, There are racialized members of this cabinet. Ahmed Hussein, for example, gets lynching threats constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you have Harjit Singh Sajjan, who has faced unique threats, both from Hindu and Sikh nationalists. Um, as well as folks looking to do harm to the defense minister, so you're you're facing this this really uh, dangerous moment where it seems like the threats are kind of coming from all sides, um, and you know politics as a whole has just gotten you know toxic to the level yeah. that it is leading people to do to to enact violence and to, to plan attacks. And you know you mentioned Jo Cox off the top. You know she was the first British parliamentarian to be killed since the Troubles in the, in the early Northern 90s. Ireland, yeah. There was uh, a murder of a center-right politician in Germany just about two years ago. It was the first far-right uh, you know, assassination in Germany going back to World War II. Um, you know, the, the, the shooting attack on Republican congressmen at a baseball game three years ago mm-hmm. was one of the most you know, massive at, at acts of political violence against elected representatives in America in, in decades. So, you know, there is definitely a feeling, and everyone has more or less confirmed this to me, that things are getting worse, the threats are mounting, and it really is a matter of time, unless we do something about it, that someone, uh, an MP, a senator, a cabinet minister, who knows, Someone's going to end up dead. Uh, That's what basically everyone has told me, and and they're very worried about it.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the other side of that equation, which is the degree to which these individuals, these are public servants, these are elected representatives. However popular they may not be in one part of the country, they were certainly popular enough in another part of the country to get themselves elected to parliament. So once elected, Justin, what's the protocol? Who's in charge of their safety? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, technically, the
7: RCMP Protective Service it has a mandate to protect every federal judge, every Supreme Court justice, every senator, MP, cabinet minister, the prime minister, every foreign visiting dignitary, uh, every head of state who comes into Canada for an official trip. The RCMP is responsible for providing security or coordinating other agencies to provide security.
0: Right, like um, the, like the Secret Service when the President of the United States comes to town, that kind of thing. That's, more the, or less. that's the understanding yeah. that Canadians have. We somehow or another completely trust the RCMP to be in charge of all of this. But yeah. as as reading your column a couple of days ago, uh, they're not really in charge of much, are they? No, they're not. You know, if
7: you see the Prime Minister sometimes, especially on the campaign trail, you'll see this kind of flanks of, of RCMP officers around sure. him that's what we kind of picture when we think of the RCD protective service. But the reality is ministers don't get that level of protection more often than not, 95% of the time, they do not have dedicated security at all. You know, one minister recounted to me how they once left Ottawa, they got gotten their car, drove or took, took a taxi to the airport, got on their flight alone, landed at the airport alone, hailed their cab alone, you know, took it home, you know, and, and more, and more often than not, that's fine. But what I've been hearing is that ministers will get very targeted, very specific, very serious threats. Things like, I know where you live, I'm going to come kill you. You know, you can't get more direct than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and have asked for a bodyguard or a driver or some level of security, maybe an unmarked car to sit outside their home. Uh, and the RCMP has consistently said no. You know, consistently, repeatedly. I've seen the emails of those requests. The RCMP says no. In many cases, the RCMP's response is, we won't provide you additional. We don't have the resources to provide you additional security. If you have a problem, call local police. And if you're really worried about your security, dial nine one one. You know that is the advice they're giving to the cabinet ministers. Cabinet ministers who have had death threats spray painted on their garage. You know cabinet ministers who have had stalkers. Cabinet ministers who you know who are the target of you know organized terror groups or hate groups. Yeah. Um, and and it's just not enough.
0: It's just not. Good enough. So you report these uh, belligerent threats and actions to the Mounties, and they tell you, we can't do much, but if it really escalates, call 911. Yeah,
7: that's wow. basically it. Holy and, cow. and they're supposed to be providing... Protective services. Well we just, you know, they're supposed to be, yeah.
0: I suppose Justin, what's most boggling about all of this is we've just watched several boatloads of money being doled out the front door by the Prime Minister and his government over the past few months dealing with the pandemic. Yeah. We are now hundreds of billions of dollars in new debt. So, out of all of that monstrous amount of money, they can't find a few bucks for the security of the prime minister and the the federal cabinet.
7: Everyone who I've spoken to says it's an optics thing.
0: Uh, in the
7: same way, the prime minister can't find money to to, to re you know to retrofit or, or kind of rebuild twenty four Sussex, which is you know our you know a government of Canada property. It's a taxpayer owned property. Yes. that the prime minister lives in and welcomes foreign dignitaries and so on. He won't even spend the money to. To fix it up properly because it, it is just politically toxic if you can't find the money to rebuild the you know the prime minister's official residence because you're too worried of the optics then of course you're not going to spend money getting more you know bodyguards for them because you know i think rightfully you know rightly the liberal government assumes that if they do that the toronto sun and the you know the calgary herald and so on will go nuts about it the opposition parties will go, you know, ballistic, uh, you know, trying to paint them as, you know, elitist, out of touch, afraid of the public, and that's what will happen. And unfortunately, that's something they're going to have to just own and deal with because this is the safety of their own, you know, their own cabinet, their own members of parliament. So and it's not just liberal politicians. This is really important. It's not just liberal politicians who are facing these threats. Conservatives are getting them too. It is equally likely that a conservative politician is, is the one who's going to get killed unless we do something. Well, you know, like I mentioned the, the shooting of the Republican
0: congressman. Yes.
7: It's not outside their own possibility that a left-wing agitator is the one to pull the trigger.
0: Yeah, and of course, and, and even beyond the Conservative Party, you have Mr. Singh, who is a person sure. uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, obviously racialized, uh, a, a racialized yeah. Canadian, and uh, is uh, and we know because it's uh, he's been quite forthcoming about since assuming the leadership of the New Democratic Party, his threat level has gone up. He tells us point yeah. blank, yes, yes, I get threats all the time, but so what? That's his approach and his attitude and God bless him for it. But again, he is not a member of the government in the sense of the governing party, uh, and he's. but he is a member of the government of Canada in the fact, because he's a parliamentarian. Yeah.
7: Yeah, that's right. And, 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 you know, these threats are facing all parliamentarians, and we need to be serious about the threats facing all of them. And that does not mean, um, you know, getting eight bodyguards to, you know, form a buffer between the politician and the public. It doesn't mean harassing people who say mean things about them online. Right. You know, I spoke with a, a liberal MP from Nova Scotia named Lenore Zahn, Aha. and she says she says, listen, I, you know, I get, I hate your party, I hate your politics, sure. I hate your face, I hate everything about you, but that's fine. She's like, you know, I, I would prefer not to get that, but it's not the end of the line. That's right. fine. That's not a threat. What is a threat is somebody who knows where I live, who." posts on Facebook about my address and about seeing me in my front yard saying he's going to put my head on a platter. That is a threat. And, you know, when she reported that to police, the police went to visit him and said, don't worry about it. They came back to her and said, don't worry about it. He's a slight man. He won't do you any harm. You'll be fine. You know, politicians are legitimately feeling concerned because the level of vitriol out there has hit a point where people are doing crazy things. On July 2nd, a guy drove his truck through the front gates of Rideau Hall, yes. allegedly with a plan to do harm to the prime minister mm-hmm. and his family. He had four weapons, including a banned semi-automatic rifle with 400 rounds of ammunition in it. Um, you know that is serious. You know it looks like he was an adherent to a crazy conspiracy theory called QAnon. There are there's another guy in Ottawa right now who's been making threats against. Um, the industry minister Catherine McKenna um who's also a believer in QAnon you know these people are out there there's many of them and they're very inspired and motivated to act and if we don't do something about it you know and and really the most easy thing to do here is just to get that layer of security to get the layer of investigation to get the police active on this to get the RCMP serious about this that is the, the bare minimum we can do but we're not even doing that time the prime minister step up the time he spent the money Time he takes the political hit, if that's where it comes to, to keep his own cabinet
0: safe to keep members of parliament safe and to to make sure that someone doesn't get killed. Joined from Montreal by freelance journalist Justin Ling, who's written uh, recently in the National Post about threat levels to politicians and cabinet members, politicians of all stripes, as it turns out, Justin, not only members of the governing party, but members of the opposition parties as well, subject to these uh, threats and the threat level is rising. And I wonder just, and I'm not looking for excuses, I'm looking for factors, Justin, and I'm wondering, you mentioned QAnon, for example. Uh, I'm wondering how much the divisive, fiery politics of, of the United States is seeping across the border and encouraging copycats.
7: Listen, I think there's some truth to that. I think it's undeniable. QAnon started in the U.S. as basically a defense of Donald Trump. Um, You know, there are obviously a number of white supremacist and neo-Nazi movements, you know, got started in the States and so on. But, you know, I I almost feel like pointing to the U.S. and saying it's sort of filtering down here ignores the agency that we all play in helping create these movements here. You know, we have the rebel media, Ezra Levant's website that frequently makes up obscene and sometimes racist and anti-Semitic lies about various politicians, including conservative politicians, I should underscore. Um, you know, that is a purely made-in-Canada operation. You know, uh, Andrew Shear. you know, I think there are conservatives who are facing threats, yes, but Andrew Shear has ratcheted up the rhetoric around this government to a point that I think is getting irresponsible. And I think he's been doing it for the last couple of years, and I think some of the people, some of the anger, it's with sort of the, you know, the, the detached and deranged anger we're, we're seeing from some people— is egged on in part by the Conservative Party's own messaging. The Liberal Party isn't helping either. You know, in many respects, the Liberal Party has demonized Conservatives, you know, mainstream Conservatives in this party as being hateful and so on, when in fact, many of, many of them are not. You know, I think the way in which we're playing politics these days is itself dangerous. and I think it's a very Canadian thing, and Canadians are responsible. We can't blame Donald Trump for all of wasn't that. Wasn't trying you know, to,
0: just looking I for... I know you're not,
7: but looking, I think many I think many people do. I l- think many people are trying to hang this on Donald Trump, and I think we have to take responsibility for ourselves.
0: Well, you know, and I'm looking for influences, you know, and you're right yeah. about the liberals not being at all helpful. For example, there was an incident the other day at to Catherine McKenna's office in Ottawa, where she, she was subjected to a, a verbal tirade, and it wasn't very pretty, and so on. But, you know, during her time as environment minister, McKenna was not very helpful at all. People who didn't agree with her, she didn't have any time for, and used the language of the Holocaust to call them deniers. That's right up there with Hillary Clinton's deplorables. It's incendiary and not in the least bit helpful. So again, it's a a two-way street, Justin. But for sure, I think there's some truth to
7: that you know. I think there is levels of culpability, right? You know, I think when Andrew Shear or Catherine McKenna, you know, use overheated rhetoric, that's bad. But you know, they're not directly responsible. You know, way down the line is the rebel who is outright calling, you know, people in government traitors and, and so on and so forth. So I think you know, it's not like everyone's equally responsible no, and guilty. No, no, but here. I think it we all have adds a, a role up. to play. For sure, and actually, you know, you mentioned Catherine McKenna. I think it's a really good point to just focus on for a second because. Um, you know, that video, video kind of went viral in the last couple of days of this man, um, you know, opening the door of a constituency office and kind of yelling obscenities yeah. at, her, yeah. at her staffer. Many people said, oh, well, you know, boo-hoo, Catherine McKenna. He's being mean to you. He said some nasty words, but he's not threatening you. Right. The Ottawa police are now investigating that man, um, you know, potentially for harassment or, or incitement of some sort. Um, and people sort of said, oh, you know, this is typical. People are overblowing these threats. Well, you know, that is not right. You know, the guy who is in this video has a long history for the last several months. He arrived in Ottawa from Calgary, showed up, started, uh, you know, harassing CBC journalists on the street, started yelling, um, you know, rather insane things outside the prime minister's office, and actually uploaded several, or or posted several tweets, um, you know, that uh, actually expressed solidarity with Corey Thuron, the man who's alleged to have threatened the prime minister's life, and repeatedly tweeted photos of shotguns Saying that's the solution for liberalism, a good shotgun. you know this guy is uttering threats, and when we try to wave all this away and say oh he's just he's just angry and upset and rightfully, so we're, we're feeding into the problem here right. we're, we're trying to deny you know we're trying to turn this into a political issue when it should not be. It is really irresponsible um, you know and I, I'm not saying any ma- mainstream politician is doing this, but I think you're seeing this this tendency by a lot of people to say oh, you know, these politicians are just whiny. They just, they just don't like criticism. Mm-hmm. They're overblowing these things. But in fact, like, you know, you, you have to kind of take the word for it. I've seen some of the hate these people get. It's it's enough to drive you crazy. Yeah. You know, you have to have some sort of empathy. You know, these are, these are still people. These are people who went into public service. You might disagree with them, you might not like them, but they, for more often than not, they've done it for the right reasons, and they don't deserve this nonsense. I was just going to you know, say, they is,
0: don't deserve to yeah. die because they have a no. commitment to a certain set of ideals. So uh, back to the original point and, and the one that you made in the column as well. Essentially, Justin, this boils down to the other Justin up there in, uh, in Ottawa, uh, assuming more of a leadership role and actually yeah. doing something yeah. real about protecting s- uh, public officials. Yeah. You know, there's there's politicians out there who have had to pay out of their own pockets
7: to put new locks on their doors, new security systems at home because they're terrified. There's politicians who have had to pay for private security to drive by their home at night just to make sure no one's laying in wait, ready to, you know, set it on fire or whatever. You know, that is that's horrible that they have to pay for that themselves. You know, this is the government of Canada. This is their employer. It needs to step up. It needs to provide them the security they want and need. It needs to cover those costs where it's necessary. You know, it, it shouldn't fall on these MPs who, yeah, they get a good salary, but they shouldn't have to put in you know, a, a wildly expensive uh, security system uh, by virtue of just doing their job day to day. You know, yeah. this, this is the, the, the prime minister needs to step up and he needs to do something about this. And people have been telling him this for years. It took Corey Hearn's att- uh, you know, alleged attack on Rito Hall for a bunch of staffers to finally come to me and say, listen, we're tired of dealing with this internally. Something needs to change or one of us is going to die. And again, it's not always just the politicians either. The staff members are, are absolutely terrified as well because they're off in the front line. Absolutely. You know, the, the barrier between the politician and the the person who might want to do them harm. And these people are not getting paid $180,000 a year, I'll tell you that. And they do not uh, need this
0: nonsense.
7: I mean, they they need a level of protection, a level of safety that this government is not providing.
0: Good point, Justin. Thanks for making it in the paper. And thanks for taking a little extra time to make it even more emphatically with our listeners here in Vancouver. We appreciate it this morning. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Justin Ling in Montreal. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. He is a columnist with the Ottawa Citizen who wrote a piece recently entitled, The Lights Are On But Governor General Julie Payette Is Not Home at Rideau Hall. Kelly Egan is on the line from the Ottawa area. Kelly, welcome to the program. Good morning. Morning, Sterling. Good to be with you. Well, it's actually noon where you are, I know, but it's still morning on the West Coast. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Governor General and the current spate of bad publicity. Your column, Kelly, uh, a week or so ago now, one of perhaps dozens written about Julie Payette and her, uh, well, shall we say, appropriateness for the role. What are we, three years into her tenure now?
8: Yeah, coming up to three years in October. And I got to say, Sterling, she's in a really difficult position right now. I mean, I think with this cloud over her head to do with the so-called toxic environment and workplace that she's contributed to at Dorito Hall and Government House, and also on top of the fact that she has never moved in, you know, if she doesn't clear this cloud, this is what she's going to be remembered for years from now. Not all the good works that she's done, but the fact that she sounds like a great big meanie to work for.
0: Well, yes, it's, it's, you know, when you think back of previous governor's general, and and, and, a few names come to mind, her predecessor, David Johnson, for example, was thought by most to be very good at what he did. He was a very uh, unassuming individual. Then one remembers Adrienne Clarkson, who during most of her term, most Canadians thought she thought she was the queen instead of her representative. So there's been quite a variety of personalities in the job in recent times. Where does Julie Payette fit in on on that spectrum? Well, I guess it sort of remains to be seen finally when the term
8: is over, but I would say that she's a bit more of a queen than she is a common person. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, funny. it's a funny role, you know, and they often say that about the actual queen at Buckingham Palace, that she has to maintain a certain aloofness from the people, and yet she, she has to be seen as somehow one of us. So uh, I, I think there's some of that at play with uh, with Julie Payette. But, you know, Sterling, I'll just give you an example of the difference between the two. I was lucky enough to be invited to the Michener Awards, they're journalism awards that are handed out at Government House a couple of years ago. And David Johnson was the GG then. Okay. After the awards, he went around to each and every table and shook hands with everybody and chit-chatted with probably 200 people. And a short time later, after the dinner, here he was changed into his running shoes and jeans, and he was walking his new puppy in the grounds, which just about caused a riot among the reporters. But it's just a really sort of, in a way, regular guy, exactly. even he's a very accomplished uh, academic. And that, I think the last GG Awards, unless I'm wrong and I was there, Ms. Payette pretty much disappeared uh, right after the ceremony you know, which is okay. Like not everybody loves the media. Sure. And 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 I think that's fine. But there's something bordering on I think, in my opinion, a kind of arrogance that's that she's displaying right now where nobody's too sure why she won't move into Rideau Hall and she has not done a good job of explaining it. So I know as an average count of Canadian taxpayer you get you start to think, well,
0: is the house not good enough for you? Well, yeah, yeah, and you wrote in your column the post of governor general comes essentially with a castle, or as much of a castle as Ottawa has ever produced. It's not too shabby, Kelly. Oh my God,
8: no, it's it's probably the grandest house in Ottawa. I mean, Sterling, it's a hundred thousand square feet. Yes. Um, now, a lot of that is ceremonial and for state use, of course. But but it has private quarters inside that are about five thousand square feet which I don't know where you live. Maybe you live in a Vancouver mansion. I don't know. (laughs) Everyone in Vancouver, everybody in Vancouver has a mansion. Uh Oh, don't we now? But but that's probably three times the size of the house that I live in. Mm -hmm. And my house is plenty big.
6: Mm -hmm.
8: Now, so not only that, but the house sits on 88 acres. Uh, It has magnificent grounds and it is just a stunning place. It's surrounded by a high fence it has a lot of security in there. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of, that is true, there are a lot of staff coming and going, and there are a lot of people who work on a daily basis at Rideau Hall. The Governor General is concerned about her privacy. She's uh, she's a single mom, and she has a teenage son. Yes. And, and you know, it's 2020, and I think probably our notion of privacy has changed over the years, and maybe, and maybe she's entitled to that view. But... Uh, I I just kind of think that if you need to be an intensely private person, then maybe this is not the job for you.
0: But you know, she, uh, just just for for counter argument, we need to take a break here. But just for, for counter argument for a second, uh, you know, she she's supposed to follow the example, perhaps that the prime minister should be setting. He has a residence down the street from Rideau Hall, also a rather nice set of accommodations at Twenty Four Sussex Drive, the official yeah. residence of the prime minister, which he refuses to live in. He grew up in that house. He hates the joint. Doesn't want to spend the money to fix it up. Stephen Harper didn't either. For what whatever reason mostly being too cheap but nonetheless yeah. that's the prime minister's residence that the prime minister hasn't spent 15 minutes in since being elected to office so how can you turn around and throw rocks at the governor general for not living in her official residence when her boss the guy who gave her the job won't <laughs> live in his <laughs> well, well <laughs> what a weird country we
8: live in <laughs> But, I mean, I would say with 24 Sussex, I mean, it seems to be apparent that it needs several million in renovations No question to make it, to make it barely livable, at least according to the reports that you read. As far as I know, there's nothing wrong with Rita Hall. Um, she would like things changed in the private quarters to her liking, which is fine. But if that can't be accommodated, I mean, I think it takes a fair bit of nerve to say, well, I'm not moving in. Mm-hmm. And And I think... You know, just as an average taxpayer, that's the part that kind of offends me that, uh, you know, you don't get to call a shot on that. It goes with the job. It, I mean, it has been a residence for governor generals since confederation. Exactly. And, and the, and the 28 GGs before you, you know, didn't have a problem with that.
0: Our guest on the line from the Ottawa area is Ottawa citizen columnist Kelly Egan, who's uh, written a column of, uh, recently about Governor General Julie Payette. Oh, Canada, how we stand on guard with the lights on and nobody home. <laughs> that was the subheader to the, to the column. There's been a lot written about the Governor General in the last couple of weeks, a lot of television airtime devoted to it. We here at CKNW have talked about this on a number of our shows, Kelly. It certainly has received a great deal of attention. To the extent where one of your post-media columnist colleagues, Brian Lilly, decided to step back a little and take a look at the big picture and perhaps, just perhaps assume that the reason for all of this finger-pointing at the governor-general may, in fact, be a distraction technique by the prime minister's office, no less, uh, basically to, and I'm quoting here from Brian, to take the negative spotlight off the government's troubles with the WE scandal and other stories showing pandemic contracts going to liberal friends and shine the nasty light on payette instead. And then goes on to say, if uh, it's a bad strategy, uh, he gave her the job. And if Trudeau thinks Payette doesn't belong in the job, he only has himself to blame. But it's an interesting take on what's been quite a a barrage of stories. What do you make of that? Well, I'm not really sure I buy into that, Sterling.
8: I mean, and, and mostly because the negative stories from that came from inside Rideau Hall involving employees, I mean, that Was story was broken by the CBC. Right. Uh, Really good reporting by Ashley Burke. Um, And other details on other aspects of the uh, possible construction. It was all access to information stuff, which Mm -hmm. I presume, you know, just broke when it broke. And she got it when she got it. Right. So I don't, I mean, on the surface, I don't know whether it makes sense that, 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 well, why don't I throw, you know, throw, some shade or some dirt at someone I appointed exactly. who's, who's the vice regal. It just doesn't – it's not much of a strategy.
0: Well, I found, it a, so, I found it a bit of a stretch, but I thought I'd run it by you because, you know, one looks to see behind these stories if indeed there is something to it other than what the story itself says. And the story began, as you said, it was published uh, uh, by uh, CBC and others as uh, – it's a labor relations story is where it sort of started, Right. It did. And, you know, you have to imagine that
8: Riedel Hall is a pretty, I won't call it secretive, but people there have to have, uh, you know, a certain amount of discretion. And it must be pretty bad if a number of employees, like a whole bunch of them, are speaking out about their boss. Right. And, you know, certainly we're living in a time when this kind of bullying at the workplace and treating people badly and making them cry and belittling them in front of other people, I don't care where you work. Like those days are over. You're not getting away with that <clears> anymore, <throat> and especially in any kind of government environment where there are all kinds of workplace guidelines about treating each other with respect, right. and and supporting each other. I mean, I mean, she's a role model, right? She's a role model. Um, you can't treat your staff like that. You can't treat anybody like that. So, um, and now there's this investigation that's been ordered by the Privy Council. And so no doubt we're going to get the results of that at some point. Mm-hmm. So this story is going to have legs, right? She, she can't just come out and say, "Oops, I'll try and do better. Because there's going to be a report about this. And God knows what it's going to say.
0: Right. But if it does, in fact, point to uh, what many are alleging at this point, Kelly, which is that she, in some way, is personally responsible for some of this uh, toxic management behavior, then uh, there will be some accountability required.
8: Well, I would think so. I mean, uh, the, the
0: demands for her to resign are increasing. Saying that. I mean uh now you're you know. in the, you're in the Ottawa bubble and, and not many of us have access to that rarefied air Kelly what is the buzz in the nation's capital with respect to Ms Payette and her future as GG well i mean i think
8: it's up in the air i mean i had a lot of email response to that column and probably 90% of it said that she needs to go or she needs to straighten you know clean up her act um you know people are being mean and say she should go back to outer space uh, there was a letter, I think, to that effect. You know, so Sterling. Sometimes politicians or elected people cross an important line when they when they start to get mocked,
0: mm-hmm. and and I'm not sure she's quite there yet. But she's pretty close. And it's interesting, so, too, Kelly, because you said she's a role model. She was a role model long before she became governor general. She's an astronaut, for crying out loud, a woman of tremendous personal accomplishments. So, yes, she was a role model. That's one of the reasons she was selected in the first place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she has an, an exceptional
8: background. I mean, she, uh, she was a research scientist. Uh, she's an engineer. Uh, as you say, she was uh, an astronaut. She was the director of the Montreal Science Center. Right. Uh, she's got honorary degrees from all over the place. Mm-hmm. She's an accomplished musician. Um, she's one of these um, kind of classic over overachievers. She she speaks five or six languages. But you, know, as you know, and you've met people like this in your life. People like that can be extremely demanding, and maybe expect those who work there to be every bit competent, and maybe the world doesn't work that way
0: yeah you're breaking up a little on the cell phone stop moving around kelly for crying out loud because i have an important question to ask you in only a minute and a half for your response uh this okay. the, the the role of governor general is important to our parliamentary government it is a ceremonial role and yet it is in our Constitution, and from time to time becomes terribly important. So this diminishment of the role in any way uh, is not good for the country and is fodder for Republicans in the Canadian sense, like me. So uh, I wonder uh, 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 again, about the future. How long can this go on?
8: Well, it's a good question. It, it has opened this can of worms about why do we have a governor general? At all. Absolutely. You know, there. I've had lots of email about that, that, that this is more evidence that we don't need the job, that we don't need the monarchy, and we should just, you know, turn the page and get away from it. Um, I think, I don't think this story is going away. I mean, there's a pandemic on right now. Uh, Miss Payetta cannot move into the residence, I don't, I don't think, anytime soon. Probably not in 2020. All right. And probably well in 2021. Mm-hmm. And then she's year four of her mandate of a, well, it was probably a five-year mandate, so is, you know, is there any point at that point of trying to replace her or, or do you just kind of tough it out and um, get it over with? You know, find. Sure. Find somebody new. Yeah. Maybe we have maybe we have a new government in Ottawa. Maybe. And, you know, maybe
0: that government, somebody else. Well, let's make a date right here in front of lots of witnesses, Kelly Egan. When this report comes out from the Privy Council office on the whole ball of wax over at Rideau Hall, you and I will have a go at to the report and what it means for Canadians. Are we good? I thought, I thought you were going to bet me on the Canucks there for a second. Oh, no, no. That's a done deal. Kelly, thanks for this. <laughs> we'll good talk again. You. There's Kelly Egan from the Ottawa Citizen.